This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In recent weeks, the Waipio Valley lookout on Hawaii Island has become a flashpoint over a community debate about public access and conservation. The county closed the only road into the valley due to public safety concerns over the road's conditions last spring, limiting access to valley residents, farmers, and a handful of others. One citizen group, Malama Ike Kai o Waipio, or MAKA for short, sued the county to open access to surfers, beachgoers, and other cultural practitioners. Two weeks ago, Mayor Mitch Roth amended his original emergency proclamation to allow Hawaii residents traveling in four-wheel drive vehicles, as well as county-sanctioned tours back into the valley. In response, YPO Kupuna and supporters united under the name Protect YPO Valley and have established what some are calling a checkpoint at the top of the road, asking folks to turn around. Members of Protect YPO Valley say their mission is to educate and encourage residents and visitors alike to give the valley a chance to rest after decades of overuse. But Maka says Protect YPO Valley is unfairly limiting the public's right to the valley and is asking the mayor to provide further enforcement of the recent amendment. The two groups and their supporters met en masse, face-to-face, at the lookout this weekend, and today we'll hear both perspectives. We start with Sherry Salmon, a member of MACA, who spoke with HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote this morning. Salmon says the Valley has both personal and familial significance to her. My son, he, it's all he knows, you know. His, we put his people there because we knew that there was going to be such a strong connection to that place. I mean, we jokingly tell our friends that he's grown up thinking that every beach has a river because he's just so familiar with Waipio. Um, and, you know, Honoka'a, Hamakua, it's a small community. It's a small town. And you just see the same faces over and over and over again, and they become family to you. Um, so it's not just a place to surf or to dive or to fish. It's a place to reconnect to where you come from and also to your community. And what then was your initial reaction when the road was closed due to public safety concerns many months ago? It was it was shocking um, that it went to that extreme. We all, it, it's undeniable that with the amount of tourists and, you know, resident, new residents um, coming in from out of state that anywhere on this island is just becoming overcrowded and places like YPO, you know, experience so much traffic, both, um, you know, vehicular and pedestrian. And we've been asking for a long time for some sort of management of people coming up and down the road specifically. But it was shocking that that place, especially after COVID, was taken away from the kids who have been stuck behind screens and um, indoors without an outlet, it was, yeah, it was, it was disappointing that that was the route that was taken. And you said that in the community has been pushing for management of that access point, that road for many years. What would responsible management look like in your view? Uh, in my personal view, it would be, I mean, the amendment is already a step in the right direction. You know, it takes away, um, it takes away the tourists going down in jeeps or all-wheel drive or two-wheel drive vehicles, um, people who are not familiar with driving the road. Um, so exponentially, the numbers go down. But as far as management, it would be an education point um, at the top, sharing how you drive the road if you're not familiar with it. It also includes a manageable and sustainable stewardship program, whether that be people giving back and earning a sticker to go down or whatever it may be. But we all know that we all know and we understand that that place is special and needs to be cared for. And people who are asking for access are more than willing to go through those steps. We'll be speaking to Mayor Mitch Roth tomorrow morning ahead of another community meeting tomorrow evening. What in particular would you want the mayor to keep in mind as he is assessing this issue? Up until now, and a few, you know, conversations that he's had, he's been silent since he's, you know, he's um, 
came out with that amendment to the emergency proclamation. And since then, you know, there there still isn't open access to, to the ocean. And so we need him to start enforcing what he came out with two weeks ago. Have you been to Waipio Valley in the last two weeks since the amendment took place? Yep, I've been I've been probably four or five times. Okay, okay. And and what conversations have you had with other folks who are going to the valley or the Kapuna who have asked people not to go in? You know, the first time I went, it was strictly to sit with a Kapuna and to listen to their stories and to listen to what they are, why they are up there. And then a few other times, it was to hopefully set a meeting with the core group who are up there um, so we can have a mediated conversation to talk about ocean access and how we both can steward this place in a way that makes sense for both sides. Um, and then the most recent trip I took to the Valley was for was this past Saturday when a group of ocean goers uh, went down to the lookout. It is, you know, I know that it's been labeled as a Kupuna checkpoint, but the times where I've gone or close friends or members of the group of Maka have gone, it's one taken, you know, two hours to get down there after a bunch of back and forth, or it was a flat out no. It's still not open to the public or not open to Hawaiians and Kama'aina of this island. And it's intimidating at times. I feel that they have um, knowledge and things to share, but we also do. Um, And, you know, that's all we've been asking is to come together. But we have yet to have that meeting. Um, And even if we do go through, there's a chain at the bottom of the hill, which is prohibiting access to the beach road. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, plain and simple, yes, I do think that they have have a say, and I will listen to them, but at the end of the day, we are supposed to be allowed access. That was Sherry Salmon, member of the citizens group Malama Ikekai o Waipio, or Maka, Protect Waipio Valley disputes Maka's claims that they are limiting access to the valley. We hear now from Ku Kahakalau, a taro farmer and educator with Protect Waipio Valley. Yeah, that is a completely false statement. You know, we are not um, enforcing anything. We are asking everybody to please respect the wishes of the kupuna. And the false statements by Maka are really confusing people. And they, they started as early as in their lawsuit already. They claimed that since Western Contact, people who are now, you know, the residents of the county of Hawaii have access by PO for fishing, surfing, and personal gratification, which is an absolutely false statement. In 1778, you know, that was Western Contact. There were no nobody else than Waipio people who used Waipio for fishing because that was the Hawaiian way. You stayed in your ahupua, and that's what Hawaiian rights are about, is you stay in your ahupua. So in 1778, there was clearly nobody. In 1878, there was also nobody from the outside who came in, and it wasn't until the 1970s when the hippies inundated the valley that outsiders started to come in and to use everywhere in Waipio that they wanted to because they thought it was, you know, free for all kind of thing um, for their personal gratification. And so um, what happened, you know, one of the things that Maka believes is that they have no impact, you know, that they can go down to the beach and when, when they're surfed, they surf, but when there's no surf, they're still down there recreating, you know, using whatever recreational activities and I don't want to get into any details there. Um, and they're still down there. And they think that that's all fine because they're having no impact on the rest of the valley. And that's just not true. They're impacting the fish populations, for one, right, with, with ocean activities. But they have also harassed and made it difficult for the people of YPO that have used YPO, uh, the, the beach and the estuary, for subsistence fishing. 
Aside from what's happening in the headlines, what kind of conversations are happening one-on-one among community members at that checkpoint? Yeah, so first of all, there was no rally mm-hmm. by Maka whatsoever. They asked people to come wear blue. They asked us to wear green to divide and you know, to divide the community. We chose to also wear blue because we do support traditional ocean access as provided by law you know, to Native Hawaiians and people that live in the Ahupua and that have generations of practice that is associated with, with you know, the ocean. So, um, so, so they, we were here and they joined us is basically what happened. And so you can't call that a rally. There was no rally. You know, there was, um, they, they separated them first and we invited them to come with us. We had a large circle. We did prayers. And then we invited them to eat and to talk with the kupuna. Uh, we have been talking amongst ourselves and whoever comes, visitors uh, from, from all over the world, right, because we're the second most visited place on Hawaii Island for all these, for many years already. Um, we have been talking about YPO, what it was like to be, uh, to grow up, to be born and raised in YPO. We have elders that are from 83 to 89, and they're sharing their stories. And that's basically what we have been doing. And some of the surfers and some of the leadership of the service, surfer of Maka, have come. Unfortunately, um, we, have, we have been not able to really communicate with them because the mindsets are so different. You know, we have what Hawaiians call a kako mentality. Kako means we, all of us included, the speakers, the listeners, everybody included. So an inclusive mentality that puts human interests after the responsibility to take care of the land and the ocean. That is our higher priority, is our kuleana to aloha and to malama, the aina and the kai. And they are coming from a mindset where people, specifically themselves, are more important than anything else. That's the American mindset. Everything is about me, (laughs) you know, in general. Um, And so it's just a different way of thinking. And so even though we've been trying to educate, you know, at the end it's always, but what about my right to go down there? You know, what about YPO's right to breathe? Kakalau says Valley residents have asked the county for years to establish a cultural center at the lookout which would help educate visitors on the significance of YPO Valley. Both organizations hope that the county will make a larger effort to involve the community in future decisions about access. There will be a meeting tomorrow evening at 5 p.m. where county officials will present a new geotechnical engineering survey on the state of the Valley Road as well as their timeline for repairs. And we'll hear from Mayor Mitch Roth on the show tomorrow about his next steps. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. just celebrated International Coffee Day on October 1st, and we were inspired to delve into Hawaii's coffee industry for today's Backyard Quiz. Coffee is the second most valued crop produced in the state, with just under 1,500 growers tending more than 10,000 acres. For the 2019-2020 season, Hawaii's unroasted coffee was valued at $102.9 million, while its roasted value was more than $148 million. Kona Coffee has the most cachet on the Big Island, but Maui, Oahu, Molokai, and Kauai are home to commercial coffee farms. Interestingly, more than 80% of individual coffee farms are located on Hawaii Island, but it's only home to about 50% of the total acreage dedicated to coffee production. This means that other islands are home to fewer but much larger farms. Despite the big presence of coffee in Hawaii's image and economy, local coffee production only accounts for less than one half of a percent of global totals. 
Coffee has to be processed and roasted. So over today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know where the first ever coffee mill in Hawaii was built and who owned it. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Strike Force. Social media posts are hailing the news that the U.S. Coast Guard publicly shared just a few days ago that some $3 million worth of illegal fireworks that was seized from the Port of Honolulu was sent to the mainland to be destroyed. Petty Officer Second Class Brett Real is with the Safety and Prevention Office of the Coast Guard's 14th District covering the Pacific. He spoke with us about the seizure of the container earlier this spring, which was kept under wraps until just a few days ago. Inspectors say the strike force operation netted more than 13,000 pounds of illegal fireworks. There were issues that Real couldn't address because of an active enforcement action underway, but Real explained more about the strike force operation. This is where we come together and we can use our broad authorities or different authorities to, to inspect a lot of different containers and do security inspections, check identifications on the container terminals and other facilities within the port. And that's essential to keep our marine transportation system flowing and keep the economy here as smooth as we possibly can. We don't want it to mess up. And that was part of this success story was this was actually brought to our attention by one of the shipping companies, this fireworks container. And they, they asked us to come out and take a look at it. So we did. We opened the container up and that's when we found the fireworks. And this, this is a a potentially unsafe condition for the mariners, for the people who work on the facility. So it was a, it was a really good find to be able to, to work with all the different agencies to find this one. Well, I think, you know, the general public is just so happy and so relieved that, you know, these fireworks aren't going to be out of the street because it's just relentless. In some communities, you know, it's just so frustrating. I mean, I've talked to parents of special needs children who are inconsolable when they hear these loud noises. There are so many pet owners, you know, who complain constantly that it's just, they're so tired of it. Yeah, and that's an added bonus for us. You know, we obviously live in the community we have friends in the community. We may not be from here, a lot of our inspectors, but we really, really, really are welcomed with open arms when we come here because we're, we're really, our, our priority is to keep the port safe, to keep the community safe. So that's an added bonus for us on top of just making sure that, like I said, our marine transportation system is safe because this is, at the end of the day, they're, they're classified as explosives, these fireworks. And so we want to make sure that they're shipped correctly, they're shipped in accordance with the regulations because it's just unsafe for everybody involved if they're not. So it's an added bonus for us. So kudos to the shipper then for being alert to something wasn't right? They definitely were happy that we were called in for this, that they were doing their, their internal processes to be able to find this and then bring us into the loop. It was a really good coordinative effort. And so how does this work? You know, because that harbor is a vital lifeline. I mean, you folks have to then move this somewhere else so that it can be properly disposed of? I mean, from what I understand, it wasn't disposed of here in Honolulu, correct? It was sent somewhere else? That's correct. Our main mission for container inspections is to find undeclared hazardous materials. And the reason we have that mission is to keep everyone safe because we found that 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 is the leading cause of accident in the marine transportation system. And so when we find something like this, as container inspectors, what we're going to do is immediately detain it. And we're going to determine what the cargo actually is and what needs to be fixed to make it safe to be in our transportation system. So we'll immediately detain the the cargo and the container. And then typically we'll give the the company that's carrying an opportunity to fix it. And so this particular company, they were able to reload the cargo, label it, 
placard it, document it correctly, and then send it back to the mainland for disposal. We're out there conducting routine container inspections. We target this stuff as it comes in on the ship. We target specific containers to take a look at. We also randomize general cargo containers. And we have different port partners that are working to do the same thing. We have customs active in our ports. We have the companies themselves that are bringing this stuff in. So it's really a team effort to try to find as many of these unsafe shipping containers as we can. And, you know, that's not to say we can't, we can't inspect all of them. There's just too many that come in through Honolulu, but we try to get as many as we possibly can working with our port partners. Is there anything else you can say just about when containers make it to the neighbor islands? Because most everything comes through Honolulu first, correct? Correct, yeah. Here here we have a unique system. It's, they call it a hub-and-spoke system. So primarily things come here to Honolulu, and there are some opportunities where things go directly to the outer islands, but we do primarily accept shipments here, and then they go on barges to the outer islands. And the Coast Guard actually has inspectors on several of the other outer islands who will be doing these types of inspections as well. So we could potentially see a container come into Honolulu and then go over to a neighboring island and then come back to Honolulu before it goes back to the mainland. So we may see that container up to three times. So it's important for us to be coordinated in our inspection efforts. And then how often do you do spot checks? We are out there doing container inspections every single week. So we were out there pretty frequently. And then as we talked about before, these multi-industry strike force operations, sometimes they're very big operations like the one we had earlier this year. And sometimes they're slightly smaller depending on what agencies can make it. You know, there's some funding issues for agencies coming from the mainland and things like that. But we, we do these several times a year also. So those are good operations for us as well. So give a shout out to the agencies that were involved in this strike force. We had actually TSA came, Customs and Border Patrol, We had the Harbor Police there. We had the Fish and Wildlife was there as well. Certainly the local police department and the Harbor Police were there as well. We had the container devanned. That means emptied out. That was part of their reloading. They had to get an accurate count, get an accurate weight, so they could properly dispose of the material. Can you talk about what was found? There was, I think, at least 13 different types of fireworks in that container. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Is there anything else you can say just about the stability of the products there that they brought in? You know, we as container inspectors are trained to handle lots of different cargoes as far as from an inspection standpoint. And fireworks are federally legal to ship throughout the United States, but they have to conform with certain regulations. They have to be stowed in certain locations and things like that. They have to be documented in a certain way so that everyone who is carrying them and responding to accidents with them or fires or things like that, they are aware of where they are and how they're packaged. There are specifications for how they're packaged within the container. And so if it's not documented or done correctly, we can't prove that it's actually done safely. So that's why we're, we're doing these inspections every single week to find things like that. Uh, but federally speaking, these Cargos are generally uh, allowed to be shipped. They just have to be done uh, properly. I guess we have to wait for the shoe to drop uh, to see if there's any enforcement action against a, a company, you know, whoever was supposed to receive uh, yeah, this. So this. This particular one was handed over to our Coast Guard Investigative Service. But when, generally when we find these types of uh, hazardous materials, discrepancies, deficiencies, we'll put the container on hold. And then, and then uh, we may issue what we what we call a notice of violation. It's essentially a, a ticket for a specified dollar amount based on what the violation is. So we can do that in house. This one was was handed over because the, the investigative service took it over. Any particular challenges with the pandemic? You know, I mean, I know we didn't really have the big fireworks shows and all of that, but you know, you just kind of wonder if some of the stuff snuck in and. It's sitting somewhere in a bunker, you know, or someone's, you know, just sitting on it uh, or selling it out the back door. From our perspective, we were still conducting container inspections a lot of the time through the pandemic, not not as frequently as we were uh, before the pandemic or since. But we were still conducting uh, container inspections during that time. So as far as we're aware, in the inspection shop, we, mm-hmm. we do not know the okay. uh, fallout in the community from that. That was U.S. Coast Guard Petty Officer Brett Real of the Prevention Division talking to us about the seizure 
of a container load of unpermitted fireworks at the Matson docks earlier this spring. The operation was kept quiet until just a few days ago as the enforcement agents are actively investigating the shipment. The fireworks has since been destroyed at a facility on the mainland. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Gibson, author of The Complete Guide to Sound Healing. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how sound affects us physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com. We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Today, HBR's Sabrina Bowden joins us as she continues looking at the ballot questions that the counties are going to be grappling with during the primary. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. So voters on Kauai will have four charter amendment questions this November, and a lot of Kauai's proposals are based on active issues as determined by Volunteer Charter Review Commission. Uh, there's topics ranging from bonds to special elections. So one topic is last year, Kauai's longtime prosecutor, Justin Collar, resigned from the position that required a special election and some contention over how much money it would cost the county to have their own special election. Jan Tenbruggengate serves as the County of Kauai's Charter Review Commission vice chair. He explains some of the reasoning behind that amendment proposal. When we did it, when Justin Collar left office, to take a position on the mainland. There are a couple of things that happened. One is it, it was extraordinarily expensive. My understanding was in the range of $450,000. So that's a lot of taxpayer money spent on an election. Special elections tend to get very low turnout. So it may not be the best way in a democratic society to make a decision about something as important as the public prosecutor. So we looked at a number of ways of dealing with that. And the one we settled on was to go ahead and have the first deputy prosecutor serve in the prosecutor's stead until the next regularly scheduled election. And there are also questions on the ballot that would modernize the charter. For example, there's one question that asks the county if the county should remove the part of the charter that allows it to create its own utility company. Proponents of this amendment don't see this part necessary as KIUC, Kauai Island Utility Cooperative, has excelled at bringing the county uh, renewable energy. And then there's another example in the proposal that asks residents to decide whether the county should remove a portion of the charter that would require the county to have specific surety bonds for certain employees. It turns out since the charter was written, there are other options available to protect the county, and they include uh, insurance and and uh, some other things. So uh, what we're doing here is giving the county the flexibility to find the most efficient way and, and once again, uh, presumably a less costly way to protect the county by uh, providing a, a financial backstop in case there's a county loss that needs to be covered. So some of this is kind of just housekeeping, you know? A lot of housekeeping measures, but there's some like more political uh, charter amendments. Uh, one specifically has to do with uh, salary caps. And as it currently stands, the county's volunteer salary commission recommends pay for elected and appointed officials. Uh, then those proposals go to the county council for approval. Uh, and what's happened in the past is council members wouldn't raise the wages as a political move. So um, this has led officials like the mayor and the county council members on Kauai to have some of the lowest set wages of these types of positions in the state. Really? Hmm. Yeah. So the ballot proposal measure would give the salary 
Military Commission full authority to establish the maximum for these elected and appointed officials and remove the county council's ability to approve them. They would recommend a salary levels based on an, an inordinate amount of research. Uh, and then the county council in an election year, because they didn't want to raise costs or for whatever, whatever other reason, would cut their recommendation or reject their recommendation. Uh, and uh, our thought that, that the cleaner way to do it and it was to let the Salary Commission, a citizen commission of, of folks who do the research, set the maximum salary. Um, but a question that some residents were hoping for that won't be on the ballot has to do with districting. Kwee is the only county that elects its council members at large, and there's been several pushes by the community throughout the years to move toward districting. And for months, the Charter Review Commission discussed and researched different ways of how districting would work on different islands and how they could possibly work there. And that proposal, pr- that proposal ultimately fell through. Some of the topics uh, are, are slam dunks. You know, they, they seem, seem pretty re- reasonable. Others are complicated. Others have, have conflicting proposals, you know, and, and then you're judging, is this proposal better than this second proposal, better than this third proposal, better than doing nothing at all? I, I was not on the permitted interaction group that looked at districting this year but but its conclusion uh, was that it did not see a districting proposal. If I can paraphrase what I what I remember of that conversation, uh, they did not see a districting proposal that was better than the system we currently have. So thumbs down on that one. <laughs> thumbs down. It, it will not be on the ballot. But there were a lot of community pushes uh, this past year, a lot of uh, community engagement. Yeah, and kudos to the people that step up to serve on that commission because it's work that's got to be done. So we appreciate the, the effort that they put in uh, to help improve the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're also going to be looking at what, uh, Big Island proposals? The Big Island proposals, we're going to have a story later this week um, on their three proposals. Okay, just three. Not like just Maui. Three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor Maui voters have a lot of uh, boning up to do. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Mm-hmm. We have been chatting with HPR Sabrina Bowden to read her coverage on the county charter amendments. Head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beat has a story today about a particular charter question for Honolulu voters. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we have a story uh, by Kirsten Downey. Uh, right, and I'm glad uh, just hearing the earlier report from Sabrina. Nice to see that you guys are giving some attention uh, to the charter amendment questions. You know, uh, you've covered government politics for a long time. It's something that a lot of voters, I don't think, give a whole lot of attention to. And, and when they uh, either vote at home or walk in still, you can still walk in and vote. I don't think they're really uh, up on them. And so it's good that you're doing reporting. I, I should say Civil Beat also is covering the charter amendments. And yes, this particular story is about one of the four amendments that are just for the city and county of Honolulu. And the the, the proposal is to change the makeup of the Honolulu Planning Commission. It's nine members total. They pretty heavily come from industries that, if you will, think alike, the real estate industry, the construction industry, uh, unions that are tied to the construction industry. There is some concern that there's a pro-development mentality for the planning commission, and so voters are going to be asked to see if they can diversify the requirements for who serves. Yeah, I think that's a, a legitimate concern. Uh, but I know that you know it's often so hard to find people to mm. serve on these commissions. Yeah, it, it is volunteer, and and of course sometimes there are very. Uh, heated public hearings, right, when there's a development that's proposed that's controversial. Uh, But the feeling is that it's too much of a rubber stamp. So this proposed uh, charter amendment, it is on the ballot, so I guess um, it would basically change the city charter. Esther Kia Aina and Brendan Elefante in the council say they want to broaden the scope and the diversity of those panel members. 
So what it will ask is, uh, of those nine members, uh, four of them should have some specific skills. One of them would have uh, at least some knowledge of Native Hawaiian uh, laws and land use. Another would be an expert on either climate change, sea level rise, and the environment. I mean, that makes sense, right, uh, given the situation of global warming. Um, and there's also uh, at least some people other requirements to be uh, someone with a land use planning background or a land development background, construction background. Having said that, those two requirements, they're pretty much already covered by the people that are on the board right now. So that's the idea is to bring in some different voices to this important board. I, I think a lot of people don't give it much attention. And, but in fact, the Planning Commission advises the mayor. They, they advise the city council. They advise the Department of Planning and Permitting on a range of land use issues that include zoning issues. I mentioned how there's whenever there's a big development, I suppose, they have to hold a briefing. So this is a pretty important deal. Yeah, and uh, there what is a meeting um, set for was it this week? Tomorrow, yeah, mm-hmm. it's tomorrow, actually. And one of those nine members, uh, his appointment, uh, rather reappointment is up. He has a construction union. Uh, official background and uh, there's some like, again some question as to whether uh, he should be reappointed given the sort of lopsided nature uh, of the background having said that Kirsten reports uh, the testimony's been pretty pretty uh, pretty favorable I, and I hope I pronounced the name correctly Pane Meatoga I believe is how it's pronounced he hails from the Laiea area here on Oahu yeah, and again, the the planning commission, a powerful commission. You know, land use issues are near and dear uh, to a lot of mm. people's hearts because it affects you know where they live, and what goes on in the area. So you know, you, you can see where it might be concerned that it's too heavily weighted on development. Oh yeah, another council member, Andrea Tapola, has said publicly that it is the Honolulu Planning Commission, one of the most powerful commissions here on Oahu. A lot of people don't pay much attention to it, but. There's only so much land. There's constant pressure to develop affordable housing alone, retail. Look at the look at the controversy over Aloha Stadium. I could go on and on. <laughs> of course, that's a state issue as well as the city and county, but pretty big deal. So we'll see how that vote goes tomorrow. But for voters, uh, bone up on that charter amendment. And I'm glad, to, again, glad that you and us uh, are both reporting on these important questions. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Sure. That was editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kirsten Downey's story online at sitwoodbeat.org. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now we look to the skies with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence, who unwrap plans about extending the lifespan of the Hubble Space Telescope. Here's this week's Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet, and also interesting stuff we can try and find in our dark island skies and we are fortunate to have astronomer christopher phillips to guide us through all of that and wouldn't you know he's back on the line right now or he should be hey chris welcome back what do you have for us this week hello dave it's good to be back so this week stargazers look to the southeast after sunset to see jupiter and saturn both planets are bright and easy to spot The moon this week will be approaching its full phase, and so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens will be challenging indeed. Now, who doesn't like a surprise? Well, sometimes some surprises aren't actually things that we like, but I like surprises when they're fun. And Chris is kind of keeping us in suspense today, so now we get to sort of unwrap (laughs) this. He said that uh, he had a surprise relating to everyone's favorite, the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, what's the surprise? Yep, indeed. With all eyes on the James Webb Space Telescope recently and its ongoing revelations about the cosmos, some extraordinary news regarding its predecessor, the Hubble Space Telescope, has slipped quietly under the radar. Both NASA and SpaceX have been studying the feasibility of a manned mission to service the Hubble Space Telescope and potentially increase its operational lifetime by decades. Oh, man. Uh, 
and this is something that people have always wanted. Now, the feasibility of a mission is being explored in depth and with serious intent. The first of such missions would increase Hubble's altitude to around 600 kilometers from its current altitude of around 250 kilometers above the Earth's surface. So they visited Hubble before a few times, right, to repair it and do stuff? Yes, indeed. NASA has visited Hubble a number of times back in the Space Shuttle era when we had a vehicle capable of taking people and instruments up to service the Space Telescope. It's a big development, though, huh? Oh, yeah, and it gets even better because the next step would be a full-scale service mission along the lines of those old missions. A crew would visit the Space Telescope, perform systems maintenance, and even install new instruments if possible. This could extend Hubble's lifetime almost indefinitely. So what you're saying is, by example, like the cameras and stuff that are on that thing could be upgraded to today's technology and really make it so it could last, like you say, a long time. Oh, yeah. And it's an exciting prospect to have both an advanced Hubble and the James Webb operating at the same time. That'll be truly an astronomical duo. Yes, I can tell you are very excited about this one indeed. <laughs> I sure am. <laughs> it's Christopher Phillips and another exciting Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. I'm Dave Lawrence, and we keep this at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. You know, the world celebrated the humble coffee bean last Saturday, October 1st, which inspired today's Backyard Quiz. We asked you about the history of coffee production in Hawaii. Hawaii's earliest coffee trees came by way of Brazil aboard the HMS Blonde in 1825. They were planted in Oahu's Manoa Valley by gardener John Wilkinson, but they did not do well. Several other locations around Honolulu were tried without luck, before missionaries in Hilo reported success in using cuttings to grow new trees on Hawaii Island around 1828. In that same year, coffee came to the now-famous Kona region, where Reverend Samuel Ruggles was transferred to the Kealakekua Church. And at the 1873 World's Fair in Vienna, a Kona coffee merchant named Henry Nicholas Greenwell received an award of excellence, helping to put Kona coffee on the map. So it makes sense that Hawaii's first coffee mill was built near Kealakekua Bay in 1880 by John Gaspar Sr. We had no winners today, but that was today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, uses plant and botanical materials to explore the human connection to the natural world. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, the pandemic moved a lot of religious activity onto the internet. The first month of the pandemic, it rose more than 30% and stayed higher throughout. 2020. But when you pray to God online, who else is listening? People don't read their privacy policies exhaustively before they start using an app. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. It's called Ocean Awareness Training, OAT for short. Graduates are called ODIs. In full disclosure, I am one. The program started on Maui in 2006 and then moved to Oahu. I signed up after deciding to take up long-distance ocean swimming. I figured it was a good idea to learn more about the marine environment if I was going to be spending a lot of time there. And that is where I first met Jennifer Barrett-Fajardo, who is about to launch a new program next week. 
I was fortunate enough to take part in this, you know, many years ago, and I just found it invaluable because you learn, you know, the Hawaiian names for things. And, you know, where I grew up in the part of the Pacific, they're the same species, but I just knew them differently. It really did help my confidence being in the ocean and introduced me to all the nonprofits, all the, the players in our community that work together, you know, to kind of keep our ocean safe and clean. Yes. Yes, so some of our speakers, so the experts who will share about the different marine species from sea turtles to, you know, just our reefs themselves and monk seals and whales and dolphins and the reef fish. Some of our speakers will actually come from some of those nonprofits you mentioned that are out there in the community doing stewardship activities and taking care of these special places. And we'll also have folks from natural resource agencies, so the folks who are responsible for managing these species and making sure all of our coastal areas stay healthy and protected. You know, and I think people may not appreciate a lot of the rules that are in place, you know, the safeguards to protect people and to to protect our marine life with the conservation districts. I mean, you know, that was just a real eye-opener. Yes, so I'll talk a little bit about some of the best practices and then also rules and regulations that folks should be mindful of. We will have participants, you know, everyone's welcome, including folks who maybe are spending time out on the water, either as their job or just, you know, recreation, swimming, surfing, paddling, folks who work in marine recreation, but also um, folks who just, it's their favorite place to go. It's their, it's important to their living in Hawaii, right? It's, it's what we're grateful for here. And I was impressed at kind of the diversity in the group community members that actually signed up for this class. You know, you had retirees, you had, you know, young college graduates, just kind of a a whole spectrum of people. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's usually a very diverse group, students to retirees and everybody in between. I think we're really interested to see what happens this time because it's the first time we're offering OAT virtually. It's usually been held in person. So the only thing that's changing is that the presentations will be online. So we're we're also hoping that that's going to open this up to folks who may not have been able to attend in person for for a lot of different reasons. I do like the face-to-face. And so how are you working, you know, the interface with, say, the nonprofits? Because, you know, you also use this as a chance for people to get to know these groups that are kind of the watchdogs of the ocean. And so, you know, are you going to try and work some of that in this program? Yes. Still working out sort of the logistics of how that will work, but that has been a hallmark of this program is making sure that all of these different groups who are active in the field, on the water, on our beaches, you know, from the the monk seal response team to the volunteers at Lania Kea, folks out doing reef surveys and everything else, doing education on our coastlines. Our goal is to give them a platform to share a little bit about their work and how people can support what they're doing as a volunteer with their time, their expertise you know, in, in many, many different ways. So that will definitely be a component of this upcoming OAT session. Yeah, I found it invaluable, you know, to get to know Malama Wemea Pupukea and, you know, to see the, the good work that they do out there. So it's a way to be able to, I guess, grow their volunteer base as well. Absolutely. And sometimes we'll even see volunteers from those organizations. It's a great way for them to maybe fill in some of the knowledge they've already have or have learned from the places where they're spending their time and and learning and volunteering. But it's also a good way for folks looking to connect with an organization to see who's out there, what they're doing, and what those opportunities are. One thing I know that struck me was just to have, you know, and I know there's a group by that name, you know, the Eyes of the Reef, is, you know, when you're out there, whether it's swimming, paddling, you know, surfing, just to be able to be aware of your environment, you know, and I don't know, I think some people call it situational awareness, but, you know, whether it's bleaching of the coral or unusual schools of fish that maybe you would normally see, yeah. you're just more aware of what's going on. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of folks, there's important research that happens out on our reefs, but some of the folks who are the daily and weekly users are the ones who are the most likely to notice changes most immediately. And so it's just a personal thing for many people, but it's also a meaningful way that you can contribute what you're seeing when you're out there in your morning swim or paddle. And will this oat training, will there be a particular focus or a theme? It's kind of a general, sort of an introduction to all things uh, Hawaii's coastal and nearshore reef environment. So we'll talk about Hawaiian reef ecology, 
Many of the species folks are familiar with or care a lot about sea turtles, wine monk seals, dolphins, and whales. We'll also talk about global climate change and coastal hazards, alien invasive species, and watershed impacts on coral reefs. What I appreciated was you had the various agencies, you know, whether it was the federal agencies, NOAA people, or the state DLNR, aquatic resources, conservation officers. You really got a feel for our community and how it all kind of works together. Yes. I think that's one of many participants' favorite part is getting to meet the folks who are out there in the field, doing the research, making change, making good things happen, and kind of hearing some of their personal anecdotes. You know, they're sharing the science and the research and the biology and ecology, but they're also getting to share some personal stories, which brings everything to life. And then how can listeners take part in this? What's, what's the plan? They can sign up at oceanaware.com. There's a full description of what the program entails. And if the timing doesn't work for them this time, there's also a place for them to sign up on a waiting list. But the program starts October 11th and runs for six weeks on Tuesday evenings, Hawaii time. Okay. And then is there a fee? Yes. It's $25. And that includes all of the live sessions. And we're also going to experiment with recording those this time since we're doing it virtually. So folks will have access to the recordings from all six sessions. We're doing this in partnership with the Sustainable Tourism Association of Hawaii. So they are a big reason why we're able to offer this. And we're hopeful that we'll continue to offer this, keep it alive in 2023 and beyond. That was Jennifer Barrett Fajardo talking about the rollout of an ocean awareness training program October 11th. We'll have links to register for the virtual sessions that will cover everything from conservation and regulation. That'll be on our website later today. does it for us today. Tomorrow we plan to hear about a free expression rally. Got some feedback for us. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.